I mean, how to be futuristic is a performance. To be a futurist, you have to declare yourself to be a futurist within some community of futuristic practice, right? It's not a thing you can do all by yourself. So for instance, to be a science fiction brand of futurist, I have to publish some science fiction. If I just write my weird musings about the future in my private diary, nobody's ever gonna know. It's, it's gonna make zero difference. I have to participate in some kind of publishing system. I have to be involved in the literary world in some way. I mean, I have to communicate. Otherwise, I'm the Crusoe guy, telling himself bar stories alone. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Tonight's speaker uh, has not spoken here at uh, the Interval. In fact, the proto version of the Interval, the Long Now Museum and Store, was not even a glimmer in this organization's eye when he did speak for Long Now in 2004, uh, about, about 13 and a half years ago exactly uh, from tonight. Um, he spoke in uh, the room that is at the end of this large building, this old Fort Mason building. Uh, and uh, that talk was about uh, the singularity, your future is a black hole. So the uplifting topics are really Bruce's niche, and, and we're, we're thrilled to have that. But Bruce was invoked in this space uh, in 2015 when, uh, when Neil Stevenson was speaking about Seven Eves. I don't know if, if he knows this, but uh, as Neil said, uh, my friend and colleague Bruce Sterling defines a thriller as any novel that features the President of the United States as a character. <laughs> so I guess this is one of those. So, and uh, I, I think that, um, you know, th this is the kind of zone we're moving into, the kind of mode we're about to be in, the Bruce Sterling uh, mode. There, there are profound things and very self-evident truths that, uh, that mix uh, between the, the, the mundane and the, and the stellar. Uh, and uh, uh, he, is, um, he is going to uh, no doubt leave us uh, enthralled and bewildered, and uh, you'll all get a chance to ask him questions uh, as soon as this is uh, done. Uh, when he finished up his talk, which you can, uh, you can hear, uh, it's part of our Long Now uh, podcast series, um, the way he ended it in 2004 was, the future's not a noun, it's a verb, and we're never going to stop futuring. And with that, let's get some futuring going on. A big round of applause for Bruce Sterling. And, and Bruce, our, our apologies for, uh, for, for Otto. Otto it has obviously gotten tongue-tied. Uh, That's okay. With he's, your... he's not the first piece of technology art I've seen shattered. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, it's pleasant to uh, be here in your legendary Long Now bar, which I've never visited before. Nice, intimate, colorful venue. 
God Hera. Makes you want to drink single malt whiskey and tell fantastic bar stories. Um, you know, like maybe a time travel story would be appropriate. So, like, there's this futurist, and he's in this bar, and he's, like, telling the crowd about how to be futuristic, and he's getting really warmed up, you know, about, like, doing quadrant scenarios and Delphi poles and the whole nine yards, but then some little guy in the back raises his hand in the crowd, and he's like, wait a minute, I'm a time traveler, and I actually live in the future, and I like to study the futurism of the past, so I came back here to tell you guys how to really do it. And then there's like some satire in the story. And, and then there's like this cool twist ending. And then the story's just over. I mean, like, bang, you know, it's just, story's gone. So that's a major problem in how to be futuristic. You know, writing about it. Because narratives have beginnings and middles and ends and, you know, a climax and a denouement, and quite often there's a moral to the story at the end. Uh, but time, I mean, the process of time passing has none of those things. They're all impositions from sort of the way people think and sort of the stories we tell one another and the way prose is constructed. Uh, so the future is not a story, and the future really is a process. It's not a destination. And when you get to next week, you're not in the future. You're always in the present, right? So as a futurist, when you hear a good story, like a good bar story that's got like a really nice, firm conclusion, and it kind of like makes its point, and you're like, wow, what a great story, you should always ask, what happens next? <laughs> I mean, just plonkingly ask it. Just like get in the mental habit of understanding that even though words always have to stop, time does not stop. Even huge events don't stop it. I mean, things are like, we have ceremonies for it, like he's dead and we buried him. Or I loved her and I married her. But, you know, that doesn't mean that the leaves, I mean, the leaves continue to fall off the calendar. I mean, the mere fact that he's dead and he's buried, it means something to us, but it doesn't actually stop anything. I mean, after his death, Things just roll right along, and, and, and people who never heard of his death are not affected by it in any way, any more than somebody who hasn't heard my bar story is affected by my bar story. So, you know, the word time is not the same as the objective phenomenon of time, because nobody knows what time is. I mean, we can measure it with, like, increasing precision, but we don't, and we can talk about it, and we can feel it, but we can't define it. I mean, you can't go out and buy a quart of it. I mean, we can't mine it. We can't store it. You know, we, can't, we can't really do anything about it except advance into the future at the rate of one second per second. Right? So there is a school of thought that says that the future doesn't exist. Like, there is no future because time itself does not exist. There's no, really no such thing as time. What really exists metaphysically, according to this idea, is matter in motion. I mean, a series of material events in space. And stuff moves around and bangs into each other, and we call that time because we need a convenient word for what's happening. But the word is just an abstraction. I mean, there, there is no time. There's just matter banging into space. Uh, so there's no such thing as next week, right? Uh, and there's no last week either. Last week was real because it left traces in the now, 
but there's not a last week that you can reach from here. Not like the world of last week. The world of the past is not a world. It's just a figure of speech. And reality is just this propagating wave front of the moving matter. The only thing that is real is the moment of the now. And since we're at the long now bar, it interests me to speculate, like, how long is that now? I mean, the now that is real, that is not the past nor the future. I mean, how long does it last, right? I mean, how thick is it? Is it like 10,000 years thick? Because, you know, Brian Eno would think that was a cool idea. Or, you know, or maybe, maybe this present moment, you know, reality, the thing that is not the past, not the future, but just actually the moment, maybe it's amazingly thin. Maybe it's like the thinnest possible quantum blip of real time. Like the time that a light wave takes to cross the diameter of an electron. It's like the, the absolute thinnest kind of time you could possibly measure, you know, and that's like reality. The actual existent world that is not the lost past or the imaginary future. Maybe it's a billion times thinner than a heartbeat. It's the ultra short now. It's the plank second. It's the smallest theoretical, measurable unit of nowness is all that is real. Now, I'm allowed to talk that way in bars. <laughs> because I'm a science fiction writer. Uh, and I can offer the opposite scenario too, you know, and, and not contradict myself. And, and, and the opposite is almost as way out and marvelous. Okay, now dig this. Another school of thought that thinks that time doesn't exist because the past and the future are real and the now is not real. I mean, only the past and the future are real and it's the now that's the illusion, right? The present is unreal. There is no real present. The now is an illusion and reality is actually one vast, solid, four-dimensional time-space block that starts with the beginning of the universe the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, and it stretches toward its end, you know, the heat death of the universe, whatever comes beyond it. Now, there's an entity that exists outside of space-time and can observe all of this block at once. And that's probably God. I mean, he's, he's the unmoved mover. He's the primal cause. Time cannot affect him. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. Of course he's omniscient because he can see the past and future because to him it's just like a black monolith. He just kind of like gazes down here, gazes up there. Everything's fine. Um, reality is a deterministic fate-bound universe because there is no authentic difference between the future and the past. According to the creator, they're really the same entity. And you can go up the block, or you can go down the block, uh, and the physics will work out fine either way. If you just run everything in reverse, run the tape backwards, it's groovy, right? So there's no problem. So the long now is actually all the time that there could ever be, right? It's the longest possible now. It's contained in one cosmic black monolith, like a single jewel-like monad that would uh, make the philosopher Leibniz like really overjoyed. Now, you know, I'm a guy who by his temperament is uh, thrilled with fantastic metaphysical musings. 
But you know, is that actually how to be futuristic? I mean, what I just did there, like the speculating about time and sort of like, uh, what is the future? Okay, suppose, suppose I'm on an island, like Robinson Crusoe and the novel by Daniel Defoe, fictional island, but I'm also a metaphysician and I'm a mathematician and I specialize in relativistic space-time theories. So I'm like a super futuristic guy and I'm, I'm like drawing diagrams in the sand all by myself, naked, wearing like a goatskin hat. And, and, and they're, they're probably Feynman diagrams because I'm really up to speed. I mean, I'm genuine intellectual here. And I'm, I'm, I'm seriously pondering the future. I mean, just all by myself, though. Am I a futurist? Can I be a futurist under those conditions? I'm pretty sure that I'm not. I'm not a futurist, and the reason is I don't have anybody to tell about it. No, really, it's a social construction. I'm not even a scientist because I can't publish and test my findings, which is required by the scientific method. Now, I'm basically a diarist and probably going slowly crazy, <laughs> right? So, you know, being aware of the future and even personally behaving in a far-sighted way, that is not how to be futuristic. I mean, how to be futuristic is a performance. To be a futurist, you have to declare yourself to be a futurist within some community of futuristic practice, right? It's not a thing you can do all by yourself. So for instance, to be a science fiction brand of futurist, I have to publish some science fiction. If I just write my weird musings about the future in my private diary, nobody's ever gonna know. It's, it's gonna make zero difference. I have to participate in some kind of publishing system. I have to be involved in the literary world in some way. I mean, I have to communicate. Otherwise, I'm the Crusoe guy, telling himself bar stories alone. So for me to write a novel about the future, though, somebody has to invent the literary concept of writing a novel with a setting which is in the future. And that did not happen until the 1600s. I mean, people were writing stories for millennia before anybody thought, why don't I just set it in the time to come? Somebody had to you know, undertake this literary invention. It had never occurred to anybody. It was a kind of Copernican breakthrough. It's like, wait, I could set it in the past or I could set it in the day, or I could like set it in the future. And like, this happened like 10 or 12 times by different authors before anybody really caught on and thought, you know, this could work. It was like independently invented by a large variety of kind of Robinson Crusoe style er science fiction writers who just did, wrote these eccentric things and nobody picked it up, nobody went anywhere with it. There was no futuristic community of practice. They would just write it and have it go on. So it was impossible at that time to be futuristic in the science fictional way. You just couldn't do it until people had a discourse of scientific romance, right? It's like a way to talk about it. And they had a publishing structure and a distribution structure and an audience and some literary cliques and also some critical responses. I mean, before those things were invented, you just couldn't do it. It was just, it was beyond the capacity. But after they were invented, then you could be a science fictional futurist, mostly through declaring to other people that you were one. 
And, you, and they had to hear you, and they had to agree. They had to validate your declaration. It's like, yeah, you're one of us. Here's your Hugo Award, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you could join the Science Fiction Writers of America, but without them, you're just you're the Robinson Crusoe guy, you know, drawing weird diagrams. Now, that seems fine. I, I better have some water here. I'm really getting into it. But, <laughs> but you know, see, there's, there's a discrepancy between these literary modes of expression and the nature of the actual passage of time. Like, I'm not really writing about what time does when I'm being a science fictional futurist. Uh, and for instance, old-fashioned science fiction is futuristic in tone, but it is not contemporary. It's an outdated and archaic form of expression. And this creates a kind of slippage, uh, which I like to call atemporality. And you know, atemporality is basically a, a metaphysical problem in the way that words are nailed on to reality. Like, you know, you could talk about the past and you can talk about the future, but then the time also affects the words and the words are affected by time. Uh, you know, sentences change their meaning, new forms of jargon appear, uh, ideas become old fashioned, and eventually the text becomes cluttered with so many archaisms that you can no longer regard it as futuristic, right? You, you just recognize that it's, that it's a period artifact. So you can't, you can't divorce the words from the passage of time. You know, the words are socially generated and society changes, right? Now, if you're aware of these changes, you can play certain tricks, mostly verbal tricks. Um, but, you know, that's not even being futuristic. To be futuristic is to perform the futuristic for somebody. It's an act of communication from a futurist to an audience and if you want to make a success of that endeavor, you have to cultivate the audience. I mean, you must specialize. So you may well have heard of the Stuart Brand idea of paste layers, especially if you're Stuart Brand. So <laughs> in, this, in this very interesting paste layer idea, notion, uh, we all share the same calendar. I mean, you know, the sun rises, seconds go by. You know, we can have a relativistic time frame a little bit, but we're all sharing the same time. But human events do not proceed with the same rate of change. They don't change at the same rate. They're all in the same calendar, but some move slowly and some move, move quickly. So there are some areas of human activities where things tend to be quite frenetic, kind of antic, and then there are others that are rather solemn. And then there are some that are even pre-human, like slow, geologic, deep time, cosmic time spans. And these pace layers would be called fashion, commerce, governance, infrastructure, culture, and nature. And, and the rate of their speed. So fashion changes the fastest and nature changes quite slowly. So I'm actually a skeptic about pace layers, even though I write about them all the time. I'm not sure that they objectively exist, but I have noticed that practicing futurists who are successful tend to specialize in one layer. So for instance, hip, trendy, trend-spotting people, they like fashion. They're just comfortable there. They're at their ease in fashion. This year's color, the statement fabrics, what the decor and the five-star bar looks like. In other words, a guy like Karl Lagerfeld. 
This guy, Karl Lagerfeld, is always dependably ahead of the fashion curve, even though he's ancient. He's a white-haired guy. Looks 100 years old. Now, Karl is a genuine futurist guru because he publishes books of wise, timeless aphorisms, which I read. <laughs> Carl, Carl is basically the world's deepest superficial guy. <laughs> I can promise you that the presidents of France are personally afraid of Carl. <laughs> Carl is a creative, but mostly Carl is a trend-spotting entrepreneurial lifestyle packager. That's what he does. I mean, he's a guru, but he's also a businessman. So if you want to be futuristic in the fast-moving fashion world, even over a long period, because he's had quite an extensive career, you would need to have a pretty good look at Karl Lagerfeld. I, I would consider him the beau ideal of a guy who's being futuristic in the fashion layer. Then there's the next layer down, which would be the commerce pace layer. And we're in an extremely market-centric society at this point in history, trending toward feudal oligarchy, actually, but still very commercial in temperament. That's what people sort of expect. Uh, and this is the operative realm of futurists who prefer to be called strategic forecasters. So guys like Forrester, Gartner, lots of you know, commercial forecasting operations, plenty of elbow room for them because there's a lot of profitable business going on and a lot of guys who want their advice. So I hang out with strategic forecasters and sometimes I consult for businesses myself. I don't mind them. Uh, I do find that these strategic forecasters always frame stuff in terms of commerce. They very rarely move from the face layer to talk about fashion or to talk about government. It's always business. I mean, they're stuck in the layer with the business in it. I mean, they, they want to be within the money, the money paradigm. And the most successful ones tend to be motivational speakers for the investment class. They're, they're not actually interested in the future or the past. They're just trying to convince people to try to make more money. And, you know, and to like legitimate their activities within the world of commerce. And you know, people in, who are in business imagine that they are hard-headed, realistic people who really have a lot of, of a tough as nails insight into what's really going on. But they're quite fantastic, actually, and panicky kind of people. For instance, they're stuck in a situation today where 80 or so super rich moguls, oligarchs, basically control all their marbles. They're not really in a market business at all, but they don't recognize it. And it's not very innovative or entrepreneurial in business at this moment. They say that it is, but we're actually in a condition of uh, industry consolidation and high technology. Moore's law has died. In fact, it was killed for commercial reasons. The middle class is in extensive misery all around the world. And the real estate business, which is supposedly the most solid blue chip investment, is just catching fire, blowing over and drowning it's quite a gloomy area, this particular business pace layer. You know, people in business are in a filter bubble. They're really not well served by their advisors. And then there's the next layer down, which is the governance layer. Now, you used to see a lot of scientific counsel within government. This is a common thing during most of my lifespan. Offices of technology assessment and so forth. A lot of these guys cluttering up the scene in government. They are a dying breed. Because fundamentalists and oligarchs both despise science. They don't want anything to have, they won't have anything to do with them. Now in this 
ancient standard of futurism, the gold standard is Vannevar Bush from the 1940s, who was one of the inventors of the atomic bomb, a master engineer of the Manhattan Project. He was also the father of the American National Science Foundation because he wrote the extremely important futurist text, Science, the Endless Frontier. That screed is probably the greatest work of futurism ever put onto paper with a typewriter. It's really an impressive governmental document and, you know, and aimed at the head of state. So there's still a problem with this. It's like, why isn't science as respected as it was? Uh, and I think the problem there is cultural. And, and because Americans, and especially Californians, have a severe moral problem with the idea that frontiers end that they're not endless. In fact, that gold rushes just get old and die ugly. They're not always young and pretty and beautiful and glamorous and forward-looking. They get old and cranky and weird, you know, and, and like obsessed with themselves and kind of like move from, you know, uh, what was right, from savagery to barbarism without civilization ever occurring. <laughs> savagery, barbarism to decadence without, without a civilization uh, is a typical frontier development. Uh, so, you know, to think that the science is an endless frontier is actually a bad paradigm, especially for a futurist or a scientist. For instance, paleontology is an important science, which is about things that ended a long time ago. And they just ended. They're not gone. They're not going to revive. You're not going to improve the trilobites, right? It just, but it's important to understand what's going on in geologic time, whether there's anything to do with it or not. Uh, and there are also many areas of scientific investigation that are not endless frontiers, they're dead ends. I mean, they're cul-de-sacs. They have to be abandoned, such as phlogiston, you know, or the luminiferous ether, or spontaneous generation, or even some aspects of Newtonian physics. I mean, they just, they're not up to speed, and you, know, you, you have to let those go. Scientific truth is provisional. It's not permanent and eternal. And science as a human enterprise, I mean, the actual business of science and like how scientists are recruited, promoted, how they quote one another, that's a very time-bound, very social kind of situation that changes quite a lot as time, as time goes on. So if you think that atomic physics, or maybe the truth of atomic physics, the scientific truth of atomic physics, is somehow an eternal thing, then you have to go all out for nuclear power or giant gadgets like the superconducting supercollider, which is unwise. I mean, that ambition is going to end in tears. If you ask the government for $11 billion for a superb scientific instrument, that is not gonna work. It's just, you know, you can't, it can't be built. That is bad politics. It's poor statesmanship. You're a scientific futurist, but you gave bad advice. So if you're a scientific futurist and you're in the government pace layer, you can't simply say to them, I have some inconvenient truth here, look at this math. It won't work. You have to say, I have some inconvenient truth here and I can use it to win World War II with a secret super weapon. <laughs> that was the Vannevar Bush method. That's, that's what life is like in the government pace layer when things are really cracking right along. Now, below the government pace layer is the infrastructure layer. And I know some people claim that government is slower than infrastructure. Like, infrastructure should be up here and like government should be down there. But I don't believe that. I don't believe it because I hang out in Italy. 
where you can have 10 governments in 10 years and the infrastructure is 2,000 years old. <laughs> so futurist guys who are trying to rid our world of the curse of fossil fuels. These are the guys working in this layer, very resistant. Guys in the Emirates who build super skyscrapers or in the infrastructure layer, military futurists busily terraforming the South China Sea with unsinkable Chinese aircraft carriers. That's an infrastructure thing. Engineers are there, architects are there, smart city planners, urban development guys, a lot of infrastructure innovation going on. But it tends to take at least 10 years to see the first results of basically anything. It just takes a long time. It certainly does pile up in the long run, however. In good old Italy, you could see literal centuries of infrastructure development just laid out on the landscape like a layer cake. Then there's the culture layer, which is the realm of poets and prophets and visionaries and saints and historical novelists and science fiction writers. Now, I've spent a lot of my creative career trying to figure out if historical novels and futuristic novels are actually the same cultural activity. Are they really the same thing? Just like with a pole reversal going on? I think that prediction and retrodiction do have areas of consilience. Just like trying to interpret the nature of time is like something that's, that's going on there. And I've noticed that a, a historical novel from the 1890s and a futuristic scientific romance of the 1890s, they have the 1890s in common. And, and as time passes, they, they become closer as like literary artifacts. They're like fossils smashed together into the, the same historic layer, right? Um, but culture is not made of futurism. Culture is made from classics. It's made from the classics. People in the future do not read works of futurism which are written about their own time. They're not interested in what futurists think about them. Here in the 21st century, we rarely seek out and read old sci-fi books that were written in the 1900s about the 21st century. They don't interest us, you know, except as curious artifacts. Instead, people in the future read what people have been reading for centuries. They read the famous classics, right? Even ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, ancient Chinese, they have an audience, like a, a contemporary literary audience. And these are works that the future will know very well. They may know some of them better than we do, just because they pay more attention to them, right? And they're kind of willing to go and, and, and research certain areas of, of literary stuff that we overlook. I mean, they can be closer to the past than we are. And that's very typical of activity in the culture layer. Now, people in 200 years will probably not know any of our contemporary movie stars, like the ones that we pay a lot of money for. And like, but they will know who Charlie Chaplin is. Even though Charlie Chaplin is you know, the exemplar of a dead medium, silent film, which is no longer practiced at all, Chaplin will be around. They will understand his meaning. They're not going to know the people who we think are like a big deal at our particular time. So if you want to be a futurist who's working on this cultural level, you'd need some knowledge of the humanities. I mean, you really need to kind of be at ease in this, in this particular milieu. And you'll want to read people like Fernand Brodel and the long durée where he argues that nothing much really important happens in culture unless 300 years have passed. And 300 years is like the right way to think things through. So 
novels can capture cultural sensibility and preserve it for centuries. Well, works about futurism mostly just don't. I mean, they just can't. They're, they're too technical, they're too analytic. They do, they're not a bottle of culture like a novel is. That's why certain contemporary things and situations can be seen or described as Orwellian, or Wellsian, or Ballardian, or even Clarkian. But you would rarely see them described as Tofflerian, <laughs> or Drakerian, or Peter Schwartzian. You know, even though these writers are really pretty good futurist writers with a lot to say, and I've read their work with a lot of benefit, they're just not operating in the cultural layer. And then there's the primeval and pre-human natural pace layer, which is supposed to be the realm of paleontologists and geologists and biologists and evolutionary theorists and astronomers and astrophysicists. Now, here's the part where I get problematic with the entire pace layer scheme. I'm afraid it's getting top-heavy backward. They're not supposed to be rapid, sharp, continuing catastrophes way down in the nature layer. That's not supposed to happen according to the pace layer scheme. The nature layer is supposed to be very laid back, very John Muir-like. It's Thoreauvian, Emersonian, timeless, unchangeable. It's not supposed to be an Anthropocene landscape of drowned seashores, giant fires, invasive species, huge storms that can change shorelines faster than fashionable hemlines can change. However, that's definitely what we're in for, now and in the future, near future at least. And the notion that you might get to pick and choose between the stately layers, that like you can go down to the part that's like not disrupted, uh, is likely to get thrown out on its ear. Pace layers may become an old-fashioned futuristic idea, just an archaic period notion from a lost era of futurism. So, well, how to be futuristic in this particular era and the coming years? Well, there has never been a time ever when popular culture was so keen on dystopias. We are really, really happy about these ideas. The mass consensus is one of dread. That is the mass consensus. That's the central idea. Um, and it's difficult to talk to people about their future, to perform futurism, and also tell them that they cannot plan ahead rationally, that there is no truly secure way of life available anywhere for anyone, and that it's, they're going to get repeatedly walloped by vast unnatural catastrophes. It's a very difficult thing to kind of sell. It's, it's, it's not upbeat. But the near future, the mid-21st century, is driven like most centuries, by demographics and infrastructure, but also climate change. It's a, it's a milieu, really, of old people in big cities afraid of the sky. That's what the middle of the 21st century looks like. Lots of old people in really big metropolises terrified of climate change. And you know, the future is a kind of history that hasn't happened yet, and that just happens to be our part of the coming role. And you know, people often assure me that futurists can't predict the future. I could predict to you with great confidence that the world population is in fact aging. <laughs> They're not gonna start aging in reverse. You know, the calendar's not gonna reverse. I mean, every 19-year-old who's gonna be 19 is 19 now, and 10 years from now is gonna be 29, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. Cities are expanding and densifying. They've been doing this for, you know, 50, 60 years. Uh, the, the trends are not exactly set in stone. They could be hit by meteors or something, but it's a very, 
dependable trend line, and the climate is just unhinged. Like, really going nuts. Uh, so time will bear me out on this prediction. Old people in big cities afraid of the sky. It's going to bear me out because it's happened already. I'm, like, I'm telling you about the present day, which is simply intensified. I'm not like making up something from, from Oz. Um, the truth is obvious to anybody who wants to pay attention. Anybody walking around in the streets of California can see all of these processes happening to us right now, just as they were happening here 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Right? So it's not that you can't predict the future. It's more that in the Brodell long duration terms, it just doesn't make a lot of difference if you do. Now, if you are a futurist, you're not a prophet who can raise a conquering army and change the world by yourself. If you conquer the world, everybody calls you the tyrant. They would never call you the futurist. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the benefit is not that you transform history through some kind of, uh, you know, occult uh, understanding of, of, of the passage of time or some, uh, you know, amazing insight into trends that nobody else knows about. The major benefit is that when seemingly weird stuff happens, you're rather less weirded out than most people. You, you kind of saw it coming. You can even console them. So, you know, let me summarize where I've gotten so far and, you know, the, the craft of how to be futuristic. Okay, first you've got to find some other futurists. You need to learn to think and talk like them, kind of adopt their jargon, you know, really, really kind of ingratiate yourself with them. They're your, your, your colleagues, your allies. Then you need to find a specialty audience in some pace layer uh, you know, people, who, you can't predict all the future to everybody on the world at all times. You have to, like, pick a period of future, like short-term, middle-term, long-term, and then a group of people who actually want to know, and you have to, like, understand what they want to hear about their future. If they're, if they're plumbers, they want to hear about the future of plumbing. <laughs> right? Uh, it's a very interesting topic. Way, way down there in the infrastructure level, I can promise you. A lot of plumbing problems, especially in like cities going underwater. You would think, hey, well, plumbing is like kind of a hopping thing when like the sea is coming up through the toilet. And <laughs> you'd be surprised, really. So you need a specialty audience, and, and you can't be a snob about it. Uh, and, and you need to try to stay alive yourself for a while, because you need some hands-on experience with the nature of time passing. You know, otherwise you just, you know, you're, you're kind of sophomoric about it. You're just not very experienced and you don't really know what it means to have leaves fall off the calendar. So you need a certain amount of seasoning to be a successful futurist. Uh, you, need, you need to get a feel of how the passage of time actually affects people. Um, and you need to seek out some long dead allies in the classics. So that, so that you can like get familiar with some genuinely slow and long-term processes, and you're not merely some parochial hick of your own decade. So if you do all of those things, and you also do some original creative work, you know, just investigate some aspect of things that are going on, uh, and you publish that, and you call it futuristic, and the other futurists agree, and the public agrees, and they say, yeah, well, that's some of that futurist stuff, uh, then you are being futuristic. I mean, that, that's how it's done. I mean, that's pretty much how it gets done. Everybody does it that way. There really isn't any other way to do it. So I do that. <laughs> I don't do a ton of it because I really don't like to work hard. 
you know, but, but I don't want to like stand here and boast about my alleged, uh, you know, futuristic accomplishments. <laughs> or praise my own prescience or any of that stuff. Instead, in the rest of this presentation, which is kind of cracking right along, um, I want, to, uh, I want to acquaint you with some problematic areas where I myself really don't know how to be futuristic. This is like, I kind of like take you into the shop and kind of show you some of the ropes here. Daily situations where I'm radically uncomfortable and I feel like my futuristic tool set is just not working. So, you know, sometimes I could see the scope of this problem, but I can't yet grasp it. I don't have like a cultural sensibility for it. Uh, I kind of know what it looks like, but I don't know what it feels like. I don't have like an authentic, you know, mode of, of emotional apprehension for it. I, I can't convince people with it, cause, mostly because I can't convince myself. So let's consider the historic city of Turin, where I spend a lot of time during our 21st century. So I was asked to go to Turin, Torino, to be the curator of a high-tech electronic art festival Got tons of stuff like this, heaps of it. Uh, and when I arrived there, everybody knew I was this foreign science fiction writer and this futurist. So I was immediately treated as a futurist by the public. And that was not, not a problem. I'm just in Turin, I'm just super futurist guy. Everybody knows that. So, you know, Turin is like the Detroit of Italy. It's a heavy industrial town where the car industry, Fiat, collapsed suddenly in the 1970s. So it has a lot of environmental legacy problems. And it's also quite high tech. I mean, it's got a lot of boutique manufacturing in Turin and some brainy polytechnic educators. And it's also a center of governance. And it's a town which is about the size of Austin, Texas, or Belgrade in Serbia, where other towns where I spend a lot of my time. And I like these mid-sized towns. I mean, I just find them literary and it's kind of easy to like put your feet up and think about novels and you know, it's, the phone doesn't ring off the wall, that's the proper size of a city for me. And I consider Turin one of my homes. I'm just like, I don't need a map, I know where all the streets are, I know what I'd like to eat, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, not acculturated, but I'm accustomed to it. So, you know, I find the Turinese historical situation interesting on the ground, there's just like a ton of cool weird stuff going on in which I can kind of dabble or amuse myself. And I'm an intellectual butterfly by my nature. I just like to combine far-fetched ideas and hang out with innovators. And, you know, that's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. So it followed that in Turin, or Torino as they prefer to call it, I do a lot of stuff inside abandoned buildings. Because that's what they have. That's their regional competitive advantage. I mean, they, they had an industrial collapse. And, you know, they're, they're a... A, a, a European city, which is growing after losing a lot of its population, but there's just like a lot of space. I mean, just kind of like cheap rent by European standards, right? Uh, so if you're, if you're participating in the life of Turin, you're basically in a life of urban renewal. I mean, that's what they want to do on the ground. That's what the mayor talks about all the time. That's what, that's what's in the newspapers, you know, that's what they're up to. They're a group of people who are repairing and upgrading an old city. Oh, and they have various techniques for doing it, but the, everybody in Turin wants to sort of like bring the place back to life and have it flourish and kind of fill the empty buildings and find like new ways to occupy the dead husk of the 20th century's industrial base and so forth and so on. And if you hang out with them and you're like, you're participating, well, you know, that's, that's what you do. So 
I do, and I do projects such as Casa Yasmina, which is a house of the future project, which is a little residency in a formerly disused factory. It's a uh, foundry, um, uh, a foundry uh, you know, owned by Fiat, but abandoned in the 1970s. So we moved into the place and we're kind of lofting it out and we get like tax breaks for it because the city approves of activities of this kind. So we have like the Torino Fab Lab in there and you know, Neil Gershenfeld's doing video through the wall all the time. And we have the Arduino light electronics thing where they're doing a lot of electronic art like this, except it's more functional. And, <laughs> and we have open, a lot of open source hardware. We have like robots, routers, 3D printers. Uh, but you know, the Casa Yasmina project is about all these things as seen within a domestic context. It's like a house of the future project if you built a Turinese house using these technologies, like open source electronics, open source hardware, maker gear, routers, elect, you know, digital manufacturing, if you made a house of the future that was produced by these maker style methods or these MIT fab lab methods, what would that house look like? I mean, what would it be like to occupy it? I mean, what would you eat? Where would you sleep? What kind of decor would you have? Why not try that experiment? And why not just like build a house, move in, and like, you know, carry out the performance of being a futurist in a futurist house. So the wife and I, which is the Yasmina of Casa Yasmina, we involved ourselves in this deliberately futuristic effort, not hiding that it was futuristic, on the contrary, promoting it. Casa Yasmina is very much a classic house of the future showpiece within the long tradition of houses of the future like a traditional house of the future. <laughs> it's about architecture and renovating architecture and about interior design and furniture uh, and color schemes and home automation and similar things that Italians naturally find interesting. I mean, it's just, when they're into design, that's the kind of thing Italians do. Um, and it was uh, really a fun scheme for an American futurist to cook up and get away with. They're just like, it's not a novel or a short story, but it's a cultural intervention. And it's something we did very deliberately as kind of a contribution to our community there. And Kazi Yasmina is sitting there in Turin right now. And probably there's some like Politecnico graduate students in there making some pasta for lunch and like gossiping about Google. Because that, that's what they do. Uh, and it's a house of the future that is four years old because you know we like came up with a scheme some time ago. And it's, so it's an established little residency. I mean, people show up, they stay there. Uh, you can sleep in there, you can have a shower, you can have a pretty nice party in Casa Yasmina. Not as big as this, but you know, half as big as this is doable. It's got a bar, a lot of liquor, and a lot of Prosecco. Everybody who enters Casa Yasmina gets to have a free Prosecco. It's part of our tradition there. Uh, it has a technical library, a lot of weird technology art there. Um, the Italian design press liked this project a lot. We got covered by Abitare, Domus, you know, all, all the regulars. Sometimes people from the city council drop by. Uh, it's Yasmina and I performing futurism for people using a house to do it. And that's, that's what we're doing. And they were appreciative. I mean, they're a kindly audience in Torino. They think we're, we're cute, you know. It's like, they like having foreign futurists around doing weird futuristic things. It's just like... Why not? I mean, they work cheap and they're kind of <laughs> up to all kinds of mischief and, you know, why wouldn't you want to cover that? 
Uh, you know, however, our futurist performance was not the truth about Turin. Uh, mostly, it, it's an assemblage of the elements in contemporary Turin that a guy like me would find most interesting. It's really me like curating parts of Turin. It's not really a house that is a house of Turin. It's a set of a house of the future of Turin and you know, quite fictional in a lot of ways. So I am a futurist, but I'm also an art critic and a design critic. So I can go downstairs to the Torino Fab Lab and I can hang out with these people there and I can like blow on the coals and I can, I can stoke a futuristic scene in a foreign town. And you know, being a futurist, I actually have the ability to do that. And it's a cultural activist scene in Turin, which has a rather whole earth style tools and ideas feeling of deliberate accessibility. I mean, it's not from San Francisco, but there's, there's a definite open source flavor of like, okay, let's just like spread these things. Like, have you tried this? Have you worked on that? Proviamo, you know, it's a, an experimental space, which is, you know, not the same as like a 1970s uh, counterculture drop city scene, but it's in that cultural tradition. I mean, you can see that it's like the same thing happening, just with like regional flavor and like uh, some upgrades uh, of the hardware. Um, however, there are other aspects of Turin, uh, which I noticed instantly as soon as I arrived in the city. And this is the kind of culture layer, the legacy of the Turin, which was a deliberately planned futuristic city built about 400 years ago. So there was also a different Turin, which was the Roman Augusta Turinorum, which was 2,000 years old. But this Roman city was just a small village, basically a roadside fort. There's scarcely a trace left of that original Turin. But this Baroque Turin of the 1600s, which was mostly constructed throughout the 17th century, was very carefully mapped out and planned by some very far-sighted, forward-thinking people. Even the Baroque buildings of Turin, and there are many that survive, they have all kinds of intense geometric stuff going on with lots of parabolas and conic sections. It's very technocratic there. It's, it's the handiwork of future-minded technical intellectuals who are creating a bravura showplace for the most advanced concepts in government and infrastructure of their time. So as soon as I was walking around in these immense marbled arcades of downtown Turin, I immediately realized, well, this is just not a normal European city. This is a planned Brasilia here. This is the capital city of an autocratic utopia. It looks kind of French and somewhat Swiss, but mostly it looks like a military science project. It's built for artillery fire, basically. That's why the streets are straight and there's like these careful kind of alignments. Uh, it's built to resist cannon fire, but mostly it's built to deal out cannon fire. So it's a scientific fortress city for an era of triumphant artillery, a kind of Mediterranean Prussia. That's what Turin is. And it's the dynastic work of the Savoy regime who are a very old European royal family who eventually ended up as the monarchs of the Kingdom of Italy. These were the aristocrats who united Italy and the Risorgimento. And they became the royal unifiers of Italy among many similar aristocratic clans, mostly because they could really dig into their native landscape 
and survive sieges with some very clever architecture. And they're not dead yet, this old Italian royal family. In fact, the, they did get deposed after World War II because they had favored Mussolini. But the current royal pretender, the king of Italy, is in fact a rather good-looking young guy who owns a food truck in Los Angeles. <laughs> Very nice food truck. I follow him on Twitter. He's a charming guy. He's got kids, good-looking kids. The royal family is not going to die with this guy, I can pretty well promise you. So, you know, these are city planners who built to last. I mean, downtown Turin has about a megaton of these surviving 400-year-old Baroque buildings. They're very hard to destroy. They're mostly brick, because brick absorbs cannon fire. But there's some marble, and even by military standards, these are some alarmingly stout urban structures. And some of them get abandoned for a hundred years or more. They don't fall down. They don't rot. They don't collapse. They just silently endure there like Egyptian pyramids. And eventually, people show up again, and they tend to just loft them out. <laughs> so, you know, now they're all over the place, and they're not aristocratic buildings, of course. They're museums, archives, hospitals, cultural centers, grocery stores, tourist attractions, futuristic planned palaces, that just won't go away. I mean, they just don't wear out. That's why they're futuristic. It's just been there all the time. And I have one of my own now. <laughs> so, you know, in my bag here, I've got some postcards of my pet Turinese 375-year-old palace. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Stuart. Yes. That's, uh, that's our, our, our latest Turinese renewal project, the Phoenix Renewed. Um, so we're trying to find a new tenant who will move into this palace and renovate this palace. Uh, and then this tenant needs to stay there for about 60 years. They're, tr they're trying to find a guy with some staying power. And, uh, you know, it'll take about 150 grand to maintain the palace and its gardens, which are very extensive. It's like four stories high. I mean, it basically has about the same square cubic meterage as your odd building here. I mean, you're... You're in a stuffed animal building of some kind. You know, and, and this is a similar thing. I mean, it's, a, it's got the volume of your thing here. It's just that it's, it's, it's Baroque and it's 17th century and it's got like paintings and statuary and chandeliers and carpets. And uh, that's our writer office. Uh, so, you know, we were done with our House of the Future project in, in, our, in our factory. When we got this call from the local cultural foundation, who are called the Company of St. Paul, the Campagna de San Paolo, and they're a non-governmental enterprise in Turin, an NGO, and they're 500 years old. Like really, they've been around half a millennium. Uh, so these guys are running this 500-year-old charity, and they happen to be fans of ours. It turns out they really like to read science fiction. So they asked us, you know, if we would leave our house in the future and we would do a video to advertise one of their palaces to attract possible new tenants, because they manage this brick palace, which is up in the hills, and it's called the Delightful Vineyard of the Royal Madam, uh, you know, the Vineyard of Madame Reale, and it's a place with a rather checkered history. So it turns out that this palace or this villa, our new office, was built by and for a guy who was one of my favorite Turinese historical characters. I didn't realize it was actually his palace until we'd like moved into the place. But I consider him a kind of ultimate Turinese historical character. 
I know a lot about him. He's a super interesting guy to me. I just never expected that he would become my landlord. So, you know, we went into this Baroque palace and they gave us the formal tour of the entire thing, top to bottom. So we went up to the attic, which is this amazing looking crooked garret. We said, wow, what a fantastic office for creative writers. And actually the entire building was a historical archive. That was its most recent use. Mostly it was stuffed full of 500 years of financial records. Centuries of them, just all over the place, financial banking records. But it was empty because the archivists had digitized the records and they'd like left the place. So it was record free and, you know, and they are looking for a new tenant. So we volunteered I mean, we, we moved in and we don't reside in our palace and we certainly can't afford it. There are no bedrooms in there. Uh, but when we're in, our, when we're in Turin, we commute to our palace at 9 a.m. And we go up to the attic, we plug in the old computers, and we have at some creative writing in the palace, and then we leave promptly at five, because they lock the whole place up electronically. And we go back to our actual apartment, which is in a completely different era of Turin. And we don't rent the palace, we, they don't pay us to be there, just kind of a friendly understanding. We're just residents in the palace. I'm the visionary in residence at the Villa Abeg, and you know, we're writing novels about Turin, and except for one security guard, bored guy downstairs reading sci-fi novels, we are the only people in this huge ancient building. I mean, we're just like the modern ghosts in this 375-year-old structure. It's just us and that statuary and the priceless paintings and the chandeliers and the giant carpets and the many other relics and the huge weedy garden and the secret tunnels and the weird lake with the opera set on a little island and a greenhouse and big urns that are like shrouded in ivy. And it's not a house of the future, but it is our palace of the past. And when we're not around, we really kind of miss it. It's surprising how quickly you can get used to palatial surroundings. <laughs> so, you know, I know this sounds rather comic. You know, this is the sci-fi writer is marooned inside the ancient palace. You know, it's, it's like an Italo Calvino story, right? It's just, it's oxymoronic. You know, it's got a lot of like trick reversal kind of stuff going on. But it is certainly the weirdest thing that ever happened to me in Turin, right? And it has, it has some element of karmic retribution, right? So it's like you're a guy, you're a futurist, and you claim to be outside of time. I mean, you have some, some higher understanding of historic processes, and, and you even have the power to do weird things in empty factories, because you can like convince people to help you but that car factory is merely 100 years old. You should try some of your cheap futurist magic tricks with this other building from another pace layer entirely, 375 years old, UNESCO World Heritage Age building. So despite this huge gap in time, I am alarmingly intimate with the people who built this palace. I mean, I'm squatting their place. Now, I used to think of them as something like spiritual ancestors, they're kind of like remote, weird, wealthy aristocrats. Uh, but now I consider them more like my partners in crime. I really feel like a, a kind of unusual involvement with them. Now, you see, our palace was never an official building. It was a secret building. It's actually a semi-clandestine country retreat. It was built so that a duchess and her henchmen 
could have a love affair inside it. Actually, a love nest, a huge love nest, but, you know, a covert love nest. So the Duchess of Savoy of that particular period, a French princess named Christina, was a widow, and she was a matriarch and the regent of the country as her sons grew up. And naturally, she had a prime minister, and he was this brilliant technocratic manager named Philip St. Martin. So this widowed duchess and her favorite minister, Philip St. Martin, were a very hot item. It's just that nobody was ever supposed to officially admit that. I mean, you just couldn't say it. Everybody knew it. I mean, everybody in the court knew it. And, and everybody's diplomatic corps knew it. It was common knowledge among the cognoscenti. Even the people knew it. It's just that nobody was supposed to speak about it, right? A very French-style Louis XIII situation, right? Mostly because Christina was the sister of Louis XIII, right? So, you know, they just had this kind of, you know, your basic kind of covert yet obvious romance. You know, kind of like cloistered and closeted and yet outed, right? So our palace is this covert romantic getaway outside the capital, Turin. It's kind of Turinese Versailles, right? Where the court can retire from the city, kind of go behind walls, and there are big walls there, fortress walls, um, and let their powdered hair down. Right? And everybody who, who visited our palace knew that Christina and Philip were having an affair in there. And of course, they would bring their own secret lovers to our palace, and nobody was judgmental because the palace was a special zone of kind of exclusion. Uh, so they're in there and they're playing charades and they sing and they drink and they invent opera and ballet and they dress up and they play the harp and they pretend to be nymphs and shepherds and everything is, is supposed to be lovely, except nothing is fine. I mean, nothing is lovely. On the contrary, the 30 years war is going on. It's really a severe, sinister situation. Everything is terrible. They're like military disasters at every hand, witch hunts, literal witch hunts, like mass burning and hanging witch hunts, epidemics, the Black Death, assassins, scandals, bankruptcies, huge military disasters. The Inquisition is torturing people, not like 10, tens of thousands. Philip St. Martin gets kidnapped by Cardinal Richelieu, He's literally abducted, hidden in the Bastille, uh, in a prison guarded by musketeers. So these buildings, you know, these palaces, which seem so rational, cold, elegant, are bomb shelters, really. They're being built in tragic tumult. Turin is a planned utopia, which is very carefully thought through on paper. The same building schemes are meticulously followed for 150 years by generation after generation of autocrat, but they're entirely rooted in weird chaos, just heresy, madness, massive political and cultural breakdown. Germany is in total state failure. There are huge tides of homeless marauders who are burning and sacking everything in sight. A third of the population of Germany has been killed. England has a civil war. The defeated queen is Christina's sister. So I don't want to get into the tall historic weeds here. You know, there's no particular reason you should suffer for my homework here. What, but what, but what, really, what really interests me, I mean, it's like what baffles me about these Turinese Baroque utopians is their fantasy world. 
It's their fantasy world, how much they conceal, how much they deny, how much they lie in every document. Now, we like to think that the judgment of history is a court that brings justice, right? That separates truth from falsity. I no longer believe that after these researches. These people are Machiavellian court intriguers. They lie to everybody, including one another. They don't tell people the truth because they don't value truth. It's just not in their to-do list. They value grandeur and splendor and power and wealth and also technical learning. But they're pre-scientific. They're not rationalists. They're geometric, but they're not scientific. They do not verify reality. They do not test theories. That hasn't been invented yet. On the contrary, they're fantasists. They're like making this stuff up. Philip St. Martin is the present prime minister of the country because he is a public relations expert who specializes in glamorous spectacles. He organizes gorgeous public events that are the ancestors of today's ballet and opera. Just kind of tournaments in the streets. These are the great media events of his day. His fireworks shows, the elaborate Baroque costumes, the performances, the dances. They're like television spectaculars. Philip St. Martin is a courtier. He's a power broker. He's an urban planner. He's a massive builder, but it's spectacle through which he justifies and legitimates his regime. He's in power because he makes stuff up, not because he really builds it. He justifies everything with fantasy. He takes the royal people of his court, not particularly attractive people, just standard European aristocrats. He dresses them up as mythological figures, gods, goddesses, demigods, shepherds, nymphs, legendary creatures, fairy tale creatures, opera creatures, creatures from ballet, and even though this guy is a technocrat and a bureaucrat and a financier, he literally controls the entire budget for state construction. He's the country's top real estate contractor. He never makes a factual statement. He never declares a manifesto. It's all done through showmanship. It's all spectacle, pretense. He creates the urban fabric of Turin by making stuff up. So, I'm troubled by my relationship to him. I feel that in some way my bluff has been called. Now, when you're a fantasist, you don't expect to look into the past and be confronted by a better fantasist. <laughs> a guy who's like operating at a higher level than you, right? And he is better, or at least he's certainly bigger and better financed than me. I mean, after all, I'm staying in this guy's palace. He's not staying in my like little house of the future over in the factory, no. And even the palace itself is deceitful, by the way. It was called the Villa of the Royal Madam, but I'm pretty sure it was actually the Villa of Philip St. Martin. I think he built it for his own purposes. The Duchess needed a place to hide her lover, so he built the palace and said it was for her, but he hid there. And she, after she died, he remained on the grounds of that palace, safely out of the way of the next generation of autocrats, who naturally didn't much care for him. So I'm in the attic of the guy's secret hideout, basically. That's our relationship. Now, even if I met him personally somewhere, if I could interview face, Philip St. Martin face-to-face -face as a journalist, maybe Wired would send me, that would be nice. And even if he wanted to help me with my problems, I'm not sure that we could clear all the fantasy out of the room. 
and reach any kind of historical truth. I have the feeling that between the two of us, it's pretty much fantasy all the way down. I, I don't understand how the truth could be recuperated in this situation. I was like, and actually the truth of what happened historically, like what happened when, for what reason, who, what, when, where, high, why, how, right? We're simultaneously too close and not close enough. The passage of time divides us, but also unites us. And I'm not sure how to feel about that. I find it painful. I'm tempted to simply laugh it off, you know, make a joke of it, just declare it to be surreal, comically absurd. But, you know, I feel that's a cop-out. And I don't think Philip St. Martin would agree with me doing that. I think he would say, in his more melancholy and Baroque fashion, that only God can be all-knowing. My difficulty is that I'm demanding too much from the world. He would say that at the end, for mortal men like us, all is vanity. Because at the end of his own life, Philip St. Martin arranged to be buried in a pauper's grave. He literally had himself disappeared. You know, he demanded that no monuments be made of him. He, he wanted to vanish. So even though my landlord, Philip St. Martin, is a rather obscure regional figure, I think he's more futuristic than I am. In, in alarming ways, because he is classical. He's kind of like down in the culture layer. He was indeed one of the inventors of classical opera and ballet. So as long as opera and ballet are understood as art forms, he'll be in the scholarly footnotes there. I mean, you, you can't help but stumble over him. Well, science fiction, by contrast, which is my art form, is only 90 years old. And there's no guarantee it will last. Certainly not as long as opera and ballet have lasted. It might well lose its cultural relevance and just vanish into the woodwork. Something like fantastic debates about angels on the head of a pen. There used to be a lot of those and people would read them and now we just don't bother. It's just like, there's no, there's no there there for us. So it would not entirely surprise me if 375 years from now, I am known to history as a very, very minor figure who once wrote something about Philip St. Martin. <laughs> right? Posterity does not reward us for thinking about posterity. Posterity rewards us for being a good posterity to those who came before us. So that's my problem, or at least it's part of my problem, a cultural problem, and I haven't fully described it yet. To describe it, I have to put it into words. I mean, I actually have to like come up with like a text with like a beginning and a middle and an end and some kind of like convincing moral, maybe, but how would I conclude that story? I mean, what is the moral of that story? I just don't know. Or maybe I just don't know yet. So all I could do at the present historical moment is conclude my speech. So thank you for your attention. <laughs> Please, yeah, no, no, that's, uh, that's, that's the long now gin right there. One, one ovation is not enough. Can we get another round of applause for that, please? So, so uh, that is the gin squeezed from Bristlecone Pines it's got that, screaming. It has that of, juniper yeah, thing going yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a bit, a bit. I happen to be violently allergic to the mountain juniper. <laughs> but, you know, not, not to its oils, only to the pollen. I EMTs, mean. raise your hand. <laughs> it's 
be on call. Right. Okay, it's so not a mountain juniper from the yeah. American Southwest. Okay. Um, that was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Ah, well, you know, you send, should come send, back more send often. Send email if you think you can help. <laughs> or, or if you want to live in a palace or, or work in one. There we go. Um, so first off, a uh, quick shout out to Borderlands Books, who are selling uh, books by Mr. Bruce Sterling in the back. They're not selling books I haven't written yet, I can promise you that. Um, I'm going to go back to um, yesterday, at the beginning of your talk, uh, when you said... <laughs> you yes. said that one of the requirements is that there are people that agree with you. Yeah, is well... It, is they're, it also, yeah, sorry. They have to validate you. They don't have to agree with you. Is it, is it also important there are people that disagree with you? Or at what point did those folks work into the antibodies of that uh, visionary uh, tendency uh, get, are, are needed? I, mean, I, I don't think agreement and validation are the same things. I mean, you can be a very, uh, a very controversial futurist and do very well. Mm -hmm. right? And really, if... if if you say something and nobody objects, you haven't really said anything. I mean, there's got to be some kind of kickback from some level of the population. I mean, there are guys who are like into the, like the success scandal, or, you know, guys who are really kind of futurist show people like uh, Norman Bell Geddes, who's like, you know, does sort of super blimps and giant kind of attention catching things. And, you know, he got a lot of criticism from people at the time. Like, you're never going to build that Norman, you know. It's like, what are you, who are you trying to talk to here? But, you know, he, he was a pretty successful guy. And, uh, you know, he's a well-known industrial designer, but he was actually the prophet of the American interstate highway system, mm. which is a super interesting thing to me because, you know, he was, he was very interested in cars and roads and infrastructure, and he, he wanted to work on the infrastructure level. And he, he convinced people that the interstate highway system would be like this fantastic advance and it was but we despise it when when you're on it you don't think what a great thing like, i could move across america there's hardly a pothole you know you think i'm stuck in a traffic jam i could get killed here the price of gas is like okay we've like completely internalized it and kind of like so he doesn't get he doesn't get his credit as a prophet for a great technological advance we just see it as background noise and annoyance you know and uh, that, that it's tough for us, not too tough for him. I mean, he died before that happened, but, um, you know, I, I look at him and, you know, I look at Norman, you know, people claim that Norman's quite like a sci-fi writer because he's doing all these sort of super giant objects. But they don't see that, like, his great contribution is a thing that's regarded as completely banal, like one of the most everyday aspects of American life, you know, and it, it affects everybody who owns a car, everybody who has to commute. They're all touched by Norman's ideas. And hmm. so, you know, his, his kind of greatest success as a prophet is something that we just stumble over and dust ourselves off about. We, we don't give him any credit for it. I don't know whether that's good or bad. That's how it is, though. So uh, there's a time when debates happen, uh, during debates, when if somebody says something about the other candidate, uh, they give them the opportunity to respond. And I feel like Stuart 
I need to give you the opportunity with the pace layers analysis that was happening. If, if, you, if you're up for it or if you want to think about it, you certainly can. But there was an interesting explication of, uh, of the pace layers idea here. And uh, I wonder if you've got anything, not to put you on the spot, you want to say. I think it advanced the, the whole idea of the use of pace layers significantly and the idea that various futurists camp out in the, in the layers and, and that's where they can make a living and uh, be sort of self-consistent without having to fight themselves, uh, which you do as soon as you get in multiple layers because the layers fight each other. But I'm, I'm interested in a way in another thing, which is you raised the question of all this dystopian uh, science fiction going on in the so-called golden age of science fiction was very kind of upbeat, utopian. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from Star Maker, which is about as utopian as it gets, and he was kind of a utopian socialist and whatnot. Um, generational concerns seem to have this kind of countervailing, counter, they're like, I want to be the mirror to the understandings that I grew up with. And so the understandings that a lot of the Golden Age folks grew up with was a fucking world war that was truly awful. It was really devastating. Talk about a dystopia. Let's just burn a lot of the major cities in the world right to the ground. They lived through that. And, but the current dystopians didn't grow up with anything like that. They grew up with technology getting better and better, the economics getting better and better, all the Steven Pinker world getting better and better. Uh, Childbirth is not killing women the way it used to do all over the world. Basically, people getting out of poverty is the main event in the world. And these guys are going, well, just a goddamn minute. And then telling the counter story. Is the counter story part of what science fiction people do? I actually think we have a kind of Soviet level of dystopia. Because if you went and you hung out in the Soviet Union, you could make the same arguments. It's like, well, you know, actually, there's more roads. And like, there's better buildings, and like, the food has improved a lot since World War II. So, you know, why aren't you actually like happy and upbeat about being a Soviet, right? And like, in the writers' union, they're like rewarded for that. It's like, oh yeah, you wrote a great novel about a tractor, you know? It's like, they really brought in the crops, you know? It's like, it's, it's super, you know? But um, it was the lies that corroded people's morale, and I think that's our actual problem now. People are dystopian because they know that the major problems we face are being papered over, right? That they're just not, I mean, we're not dealing with the problems that we have. So there's like a loss of legitimacy among institutions. And you've got people who basically are dystopian, but they're dystopian in the level of like Soviet guys mumbling black humor jokes to one another, you know, while, while mm. avoiding the situation, right? Uh, and, you know, I, I like to make historical analogies, but they don't, they don't always work perfectly or, or, or well. And, you know, there, there are a lot of people in Russia right now who are actually pretty upbeat about the situation, even though, I mean, they're proud, right? They, they really feel like they're off their deathbed and kind of, you know, laying out with two fists. I mean, they're, they're, they're ethno-nationalist Russian enthusiasts, and a lot of them are mm. Christian fundamentalists, <laughs> orthodox Christian fundamentalists. Um, uh, and they do this even though there's like a snowstorm of official lies from the regime. I mean, they just lie about everything routinely sitting like guys with nerve gas in London. I mean, they're lying so openly and with such brazen lack of good faith that it's almost like gloating. And they're actually gloating with the lies at this point. 
right? So, you know, Russians used to be the most dystopian sci-fi writers, especially if they escaped Russia, uh, whereas now the most optimistic ones are probably Chinese. Yeah. You, know, you know, and you would mm. not want to go to China and sort of say, well, oh, what a great place. I mean, you know, I have, well, you know, normally you would not say I'm going to China for like the better way of life that they have. But, you know, the Chinese sci-fi writers are just like punching way above their weight right now. And that, this really is their golden age of, you know, science fiction. And they're not writing dystopian stuff. In fact, they're writing just really pretty good novels. I mean, things that are kind of have emotional depth and they've got vision and they're not comic booky or stupid. They're not serving the regime. They're not, they're really literateurs. You know, it's like they could really do it. You know, they're like, they're in, they're in, they're in pretty good shape, right? So, you know, how are you gonna explain that? Okay, I don't know. I mean, I don't have like a grand theory, but it interests me a lot that they're around. And they're not, they're not utopian. I mean, the utopian thing is overblown. I mean, people who wrote commercial science fiction tended to write stuff with upbeat endings, especially in the US. But the best known works of imaginative fantasy are 1984 and Brave New World and you know, other very serious, somber kind of geopolitical novels that are all about oppression and torture and official lies and, you know, and deceit and hate and murder and you know, phoniness and so forth. And these are the things that really I mean, these are the ones that are kind of sunk down on the cultural level. You, you see Orwellian around, you would see Ballardian around, you don't really see mm. Buck Rogersian, you know. <laughs> kind of, it just seems childish, right? So, I don't know, I mean, it, it, it's a matter of temperament. Uh, you know, guys in my era, I mean, cyberpunks were into dark euphoria and kind of, uh, we're not into sense of wonder, we're into like ecstasy and dread. Right? I mean, ecstasy and dread is stuff that you see a lot in cyberpunk texts. It's like, it's really horrible, and like, oh, but really, really amazing, and like, but also really horrible, but like, just fantastic. I can't get my head around it. It's like, except his leg's been sawn off, you know, and it's like, and this is kind of a very deliberate period sensibility that, you know, sort of emerged from the 1980s, and, you know, it, you could see it in film and the way people dressed and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, it was fun to do. It kind of hadn't been tried out. Uh, but I, I, don't have, I don't have a magic solution for it. And I also don't think that optimistic science fiction actually makes anybody optimistic. <laughs> I, I don't think that helps. I don't think that helps with the problem at all. I mean, what makes people optimistic is something to be enthusiastic about. That, that's, why, that's when people are really optimistic. They don't even ask if they're in a good mood. They just hop out of bed because they like, want to go do it. And we don't have a lot of things to be optimistic, to be enthusiastic about. Like Moore's Law was something, or the internet was something. But this is like your uncle's job now. We don't have like, something that like, really makes people like, hop out and make it happen. And if we did, the oligarchs you know, would hit it on the head or buy it or, you know, or suppress it in some way. And I think people know that. So that's the actual... That's the actual, um, what's the right word for it? Malaise. That's the, hmm. that's the Carter-esque malaise of our era. We're not authentic. Right. So, uh, and Joe, Joe's got the, the mic, so get his attention. He will get it to you. Um, I want to ask you this a question. This is really good gin, by the way. Yeah, man. Is this, is this really gin? It's really gin. I'll tell you the story afterwards. 
but, but let's make the most of your time. Um, so, so I want to ask you something that's a little bit inside baseball for science fiction writers, but it's actually something that is recently, I feel like, being externalized and talked about a bit, and I'm curious, world building is a tool of science fiction writers. And, it, and again, it's a tool that's being, I think, talked about in a way that the mechanics of writing aren't talked about a whole lot, uh, yeah. usually, for things. Is, is it a new phenomena or a more developed phenomena in this era? Is, is, uh, what, are, what, are your, what are your thoughts and your takes on it? And, and towards the subject of your talk here, it seems like world building by looking for an internal consistency to this larger sort of system, as opposed to a more golden age sci-fi or, or earlier thing, where there's yeah. a, maybe a singular aspect that makes everything okay and you don't think about all the repercussions, is that, what does that mean in terms of this futuristic striving uh, analysis that you're, you're, uh, you're, you're thinking about here? Well, you know, I used to do a lot of that. And I used to really like kinds of fiction that had like, you know, long... The world building stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's yeah. just kind of the Pope of the Elves thing going on where there's like, you've got the made up alphabet and the kind of fake country, <laughs> you know, and, and the whole thing is worked out in kind of exquisite George R.R. R. Martin detail. Right, or, or Tolkien, so it does go yeah. back to Tolkin. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. I, I kind of, you know, we used to praise that. We call it imaginative concentration. It's like mm. the guy's really gone really deep into this thing and he's like invented the sink and the dish in the sink, and the leftovers and the dish in the sink. That must be really good acid. It's going for a long time. Well, you know, I, I think there's, a, there's an aesthetic to that mm -hmm. kind of built world that people appreciate, and they, they like it because you don't reveal all of it to people. I mean, there's like more going on than appears in the text, and that's when it feels like a built world. And, but, and, and, and it's also interesting, too, because there are things like Thieves' uh, World, or there, there, there are a few uh, things where like, multiple writers can then engage with that yeah, so, universe you know, I, building. I, I wrote some books like that, like Schismatrix is a book of that kind. It's got just like tons of index cards somewhere else, hmm. and you know, like elaborate relationships between characters that are just not revealed to the reader. Yeah. So it's just like, gee whiz, this guy is like some kind of anonymous, fantastic historian, you know, the things like really deep. It's, it's mostly about not showing people all the moving parts. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, you know, and especially in the 21st century, there's been like severe, like really important kind of technical advances in making prototype objects mm -hmm. or just fake things or like actually building a fake world. Like Casa Yasmina is a world building exercise that Turin would look like if Turin was built with open source methods. Right? So it's like a house that implies a city that doesn't exist, hmm. right? And, and it has fictional elements in it, like it has a kid's room, which is full of kid toys and a kid bed, but there are no children in that space. <laughs> They're imaginary children, but a house of the future has to have children because the, without children, there are no future, right? That's <laughs> really... Well, you know, yeah, yeah, so we have these fake kids. We didn't name them. <laughs> But you know, everything in the space is like designed from their point of view. And like mm. as curator of Casa Yasmina, if a guy brings in a drill press from downstairs, I say, you have to take that out, it would hurt the kids. <laughs> you know, and they agree, oh, well, I didn't think of that. Sorry, Mr. Sterling, and, you know, and they, <laughs> and they remove the sharp object. But that's what makes it look like a house, right? I mean, it actually looks like a residence even though it has fictional residences in it. A home, yes. Well, home is not an Italian word. It's a casa. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it has a domestic flavor which is deliberately put there as a world-building element. Mm -hmm. And you can get away with that more easily than you used to. But, it, but it's not worked out, actually, ahead of time so much as there's a, a sense of the mission of the homeness, the casa-ness of it. No, it was actually worked out as soon as we saw the blueprints. I mean, mm -hmm. when we started lofting out the thing, it's like, where's the children's room? Mm. You know, where's the master bedroom? And like, it was built for an imaginary family. We never named them. But we knew they were Turinese, right? You didn't go full persona yeah, but on it. No, yeah. but, but we could have, and it wouldn't have taken much, and I don't think it would even have slowed people down. Like, I could write a novel set in Kaziasmina that has a fictional family in it, and, you know, it'd probably do okay. Uh, it, it, I mean, and, and in the meantime, there's just, like, guys in the design world who can make prototype objects or fictional objects or objects that don't work and kind of promote them through acts of design fiction or architecture fiction and you know, really get a pretty good audience and even make money. Mm. Like I was at SciArc a couple of weeks ago, teaching in the design school in LA, and you know, talking to one of my fellow instructors there. I mean, I'm not an instructor, I'm merely a passing guest, but he's like making up imaginary buildings for cybercoin companies and making a lot of money for it, even though they have absolutely no intention of actually building these structures. They just want to show them to investors and sort of say, after we've got 200 million, we're going to like buy a big chunk of downtown and we're going to like put all these cool Frank Gehry style imaginary buildings in them. And we have like a guy on retainer who's like willing to come in here and like help us with our Apple style corporate headquarters. You know, even though the entire thing is basically a crypto coin put up job, I don't think they're ever going to build this thing. They're nevertheless rewarding him for it. And they're even having like very elaborate arguments about what the nature of the buildings are. Do, do they have ATMs, for instance? Or should they look like banks? You know, because crypto coin people hate bankers. They consider them the class enemy. So, you know, what does a crypto coin vault look like? I mean, you got to hire somebody. Right? You can't just draw it on a napkin. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was boasting to this guy about my fondness for paper architecture and imaginary architecture things. And, you know, I, I get along at SciArc very well, not because I know much about architecture, but because I know a lot about weird architecture. I know really a lot about weird architecture. I know more about weird architecture than most professional architects would ever know because they, just, they don't pay any attention to, like, the crazy stuff that like, didn't work and is never gonna work. <laughs> so, you know, we may be working on some projects with these guys, mm -hmm. you know, I mean. For the kids. No, no, we're, well, you know, I, I don't think they're gonna be home because SciArc guys are like big. I mean, they wanna do like Frank Gehry style stuff. They wanna do like Lord Norman Foster style artificial architecture things. They, they wanna do things like floating Zeppelins in the atmosphere of Venus kind of. <laughs> imaginary architecture, and you know, their sci-fi writers could really help out a lot. I mean, I promise you that if you want to invent a floating zeppelin in the atmosphere of Venus and Neil Stevenson drops by, you're going to have one fuck of a floating zeppelin, okay? It's, it's really going to scare people, right? They might even faint, you know? People will write doctoral dissertations about it. So, so uh, a quick aside, and then we'll get to this question. Uh, you just gave a talk about architecture that was 
great as, as far as I got through it. I was literally listening to it in the office while I was doing it. And you had a line about blimps uh, during that talk, which I laughed out loud and embarrassed myself a little bit uh, right. at the thing. Do you, I don't know if you... Uh, well, you know, they're, they're, these things date back to Laputa, which is sort of the first sci-fi blimp, like the city in the sky kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of standard. Um, and, you know, and they never work. I mean, Zeppelins didn't really work out. Cargo blimps, they're basically toys for big shows. I mean, they have neon on the side or whatever. But now we've got things like drones and these other kind of aerial structures, and even like Google Loon, which is sort of kind of a commercial success. I mean, at least it's like a lunatic kind of 100-day blimp, 300-day, I think. Um, so, you know, people always yearn toward these things, like the flying car notion. Uh, and they are bullshit. You know, especially, I mean, especially if they're if they just sort of appear as a toy signifier for some flat pack future. It's like this is futuristic because it's got a blimp. It's not going to be futuristic because it's got a blimp. Um, however, you know, it's not, it's not beyond the laws of physics to actually build a floating city in the atmosphere of Venus. I mean, that sounds a lot weirder than a blimp. But people are never going to live on the surface of Venus. But the, the atmosphere of Venus is so thick that you could actually build like a, basically a geodome, I mean a round thing, and just kind of have it bob around, you know, on the top of this sulfuric murk, right? <laughs> and, it, you know, technically speaking, it makes more sense than like an international space station, because those are very bad for your health. If you were on Venus, you'd have normal Earth-style gravity, and you'd just be in a big balloon, right? So, you know, I, I don't, I don't, dismiss the idea of large floating objects in the sky. I don't think, they're not going to be built for the reasons that guys who like to put blimps in fake cities want to put blimps in fake cities. They would be built for reasons of power, governments, commerce, fashion, whatever. And it's really more of a matter of the price point coming down and, and, and somebody finding a killer application for a living and one of these aerial structures, right? And even an aerial structure in the atmosphere of the Earth, I think, makes more sense than like a, a moon colony. You could build yeah. one, really, and float up there indefinitely for maybe a tenth of the price of a moon colony, maybe a twentieth of the price. Just like, when would you come down? I mean, why, why are you up there? Right? Just, I mean, do you really want to live in a blimp? You know, it's like. <laughs> Have you ever lived in an airport? You know, have you, have you spent a lot of time, have you logged a lot of flying hours, right? So, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's really an interesting, an interesting architectural problem. You know, and architects like megastructures. They like, they like to think big, right? And, and I don't have a problem with that. I mean, architects are into space. They're, they're into sort of spatial management. I mean, that's what, they're kind of, things connect to things, you know, it's like that's what they do. It's like this part goes here and there's like this other part and then like this part here and like, okay. I mean, maybe one of the biggest problems with an aerial city is it's hard, hard to make that building learn. Like hmm. how, how do you repair an aerial structure hmm. on the fly if you decide you need like a veranda, you know? Do you, do you park it? Do you deflate it? I mean, what, what would you do with it? I don't know, I, I could easily teach a course about that at SciArc if somebody wanted to hire me to do it. You know, and we could do it. We could do furniture. We could do, you know, social media. We could do, we could do the politics of that structure, right? 
I mean, we, we could world build, you know, we could, we could hire, you know, ex-GBN guys, you know. We, <laughs> if, 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 we had, if we had a Google budget, you know, or a Marvel Comics Universe movie budget, yeah, you could dress it up to the any extent you want, right? I mean, just like invent the whole thing, shebang, right? Which is not something you could do, you know, 40 years ago in sci-fi, right? I mean, really, you know. If somebody, you know, the Sheikh of Dubai wanted to drop 15 million on an imaginary flying city, you, could, you couldn't build one, but you could build kind of every appurtenance for one, right? And you could just, you could just hire experts and have them work the whole thing out. You know, there's, there's nothing stopping us, really, you know, except making it pay. And that's kind of probably easier than I thought in a world that believes in stuff like Bitcoin. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and in a way, it's the secret of these Baroque palaces. You know, they're, they're really kind of not on the budget at all. You know, they're just kind of there by autocratic decree. Mm. And they exist pretty much out of sheer grandeur and glamour. People are kind of happy to build them. You know, it's like, oh, our town is so great and our duke is so wise. It's like, why? <laughs> well, have you ever seen like this other town? Like dirty. <laughs> You know, like dirty and full of rats. And our town is grand and full of marble, and you know, and they're like the, the population's willing to go with them. So just to review, blimps, bullshit. Floating cities, practical. Um, we have a question. There we go. Yeah, uh, Bruce Sterling, Ross Anderson, longtime fan, first-time caller. How are you, man? Uh, it's good to see you. Um, uh, First of all, I've seen a few talks in this building, and this is the best one, so congratulations. Um, secondly, it's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's fair. Secondly, uh, at the beginning of your talk, you, you laid out two versions of the now, one that's like at the immediate quantum, you know, the speed of light by an electron, and the one that's a black monolith, you know, God standing out of time. And I want to know... Most days when you're at the palace and you're thinking, where are you at in that continuum between those two? Uh, you know, I, I'm actually kind of the super thin now version if I have to pick between the two. Because, you know, I, I, I don't believe in, in, in predestination. You know, I, I believe in like deterministic chaos and a lot of these other kinds of, you know, Ilya Prigozhin style second law of thermodynamic stuff. Uh, you know, and I think that the universe makes itself up as it goes along. I don't think it's a solemn thing. But, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that we know what time is. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking we should be ready for some kind of Copernican revolution. Mm. Where it's like, okay, the universe is 94% dark energy and dark matter. And it's like 4% stuff we can sense. Okay, what the heck gives with that? I mean, you know, we're like some kind of spumes kind of situation. So, you know, I don't expect this to happen in my lifetime, but, you know, there have been I, many, many different meta-histories about what time is and kind of theories of what time is, and I don't think we've reached the final one. You know, I just, I don't think, you know, I, I, would, I would suspend judgment on what time is. Uh, I did not mention, like, some of my personal favorite wacky notions of time, like what's outside, outside the light cone, right? Mm. If you're into relativistic physics, there's this thing of the light cone, right? Where the light cone is like 
information can reach you because you know that it can travel at the speed of light. Maybe you can send something back. But then there's other things as the universe continues to expand. The light cone kind of gets narrower, and there's like larger and larger areas of time and space that you can never ever learn anything about. It's, it's not like an event horizon. It's just like literally a distance, right? I mean, they're just like they're just like too far. So you know, as a futurist, I often wonder about what's our moral relationship to people outside the time cone. I mean, I mean, we can never do anything to them, right? I mean, there's just there's nothing we can do. Good or bad, we will never know anything about them. I mean, they're just permanently like monsters on the unknown edge of the map. <laughs> and like, should we worry about them? I mean, should we think of, I mean, we're outside their time cone, by the way. I mean, we're their unknowable monsters. So like, but they're like more alien than aliens. I mean, in theory, you could like contact an alien. These guys are just like gone, right? But we're gone from them, so we're as real as they are. They're as real as we are. They're just like untouchable through any kind of imaginary, you know, okay? It's like, all right, you can think about the past, and I have like these problems where Philip St. Martin you know, or, or other kind of historical figures are just problems with the idea of your relationship to historical figures. Like, should you sympathize with them? Should you judge them rigorously? Is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? But for somebody who's outside the light cone, like, I mean, it's not the theological relationship to somebody. You know, it's like, are they the accursed? Right? Like, are they, do we even have words for them? And it's just like, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's just like, it's just like, they're not even like angels or you know mythological beings or fantastic beings. They're they're probably as real as us. They're just not reachable through reality. There's no there's no statement you can make about them. Hmm. Right? I mean maybe there should be. I mean the bumper sticker outside the light cone. I love you. <laughs> Coexist. You know in the light outside the light. You know you there in the darkness. Hi. You know. <laughs> Or you gaze into the abyss, and the abyss gazes back to you, and it says, "How's it going?" But but you're yeah. like you're like waiting for a, a headlight to reflect off the cave wall, so you can get an angle on them and no, make no, more no, of a no, judgment. No, no, no. That's, no? Like, that's like too Plato. I mean, yeah, that's, like, that's, that's just the you know just the, the right fandom, amount of That's Plato, the phantoms but, yeah. in the cave. I mean, that's yeah. too that's yeah. too easy. <laughs> the light cone is like different. Or like, you know, I read an article recently by a guy who's like some kind of homemade physicist, and he's in a moral panic at the idea that our light, our light cone is getting narrower. Right? <laughs> like time is passing. It's like we're running out of opportunities to like go outside the light cone, and the longer we wait, you know, it's like, it's like averting global warming. Unless we like attack the Andromeda galaxy right now, we're going to end up in a very narrow area of the future light cone where we just can't, can't reach the things at all. It's like... We gotta whip it, you know, we gotta really push that, right? Light speed drive, get it right now. It's like things are dwindling. We're being crushed down into a needle-like shape. That's a very strange sensibility, right? But you know, I can imagine it becoming a mass sensibility, right? Like, you know, it's like the future is being delimited. It's being, it's being you know, whittled away, whittled away. And I think what the guy is doing is actually he's having a moral panic about global warming which he's merely transforming into his apparent panic over the light cone. 
But in a future society where people do feel like their lives are more and more delimited, I could see them like worrying about this on some kind of cult level, right? Like the Church of the Light Cone, right? Just like smaller, smaller. We must fight somehow, you know? Like, like our imagination is being squished. There's our tightrope future. Ah, yeah. ah, maybe. Uh, the the uh, right, do we have do you have uh, the mic in someone else's hand there? Okay. It came to me, um, Alexis Madrigal. How you doing, Bruce? Um, oh. I you know in, in some of your previous writing you've referred to the dark euphoria, uh, particularly after the financial crisis uh, in in the aughts. Today you talked about how the dominant mode of society is dread, um, and. I was thinking about the different layers, different pace layers, and wondering if dread and dark euphoria are inhabiting different layers, or whether dread has, has infected all of them uh, through time. Hmm. Uh, well, you know, if nature goes, the rest goes. So if nature is dreadful, all other pace layers kind of have to be dreadful, in my opinion. And you know, in dark euphoria, it's like, okay, things are dark, but there's also just like amazing potential loose. It's like ecstasy and dread. But, you know, if there's no particular signs of ecstasy, then the darkness is going to dominate, right? Uh, and, you know, the euphoria could have dominated. I mean, things just kind of like strange, splendid things happen, you know, like the events of 1989, they were very euphoric. Uh, and, th you know, those can show up at any time. I mean, you know, Vaslav Havel said a lot of wise things about that. Um, and you know, and, and, and kind of about the the uh, the innate instability of the passage of time, and how like you can do you can do small gestures that suddenly radiate throughout the body of society. So you know, people can be very happy very quickly. Uh, and I was very interested in those times and events. Um, I mean, it's a it's a strange area. You know, the Czech Republic. It's a very nice biography written by one of Havel's followers, which I read, where she's hanging out with some of her activist friends in the street, and the regime has fallen, and Havel is being sworn in as president. And she tells her girlfriend, this is the happiest day of our life. <clears throat> and that's a very euphoric moment. But it's also very dark in that she's aware that no other day of her life is going to be this happy. <laughs> This is not the beginning of something good. No, this no. is as good I mean, this, as it this gets. This is like as good as it can possibly get. Yeah. And this is sort of as historically good as it can possibly get. You know, and it's not even that it goes downhill after this. It just becomes normal after this, right? And, you know, that's kind of a dark euphoric situation. It's like, okay, I'm like euphoric. And then there's like this clicking moment where I realize, okay, the world hasn't actually changed. I've just woken up in bed with a different boyfriend, you know, or whatever it was that kind of... But now he's like going to be the husband, and you know, I sank into his arms, and now my arms are in his sink, you know, and I'm like carrying out a kind of normal human, human life, right? So you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of dystopian American science fiction, mostly because they don't want to lie, right? And it's it's actually no, it's actually it's actually very hard. I mean. There are people in, the, in science fiction who are of the right, but there are very few people in science fiction who are actually like lick spittles of the establishment. I mean, they just don't go along with it ever. You know, I mean, they, they have different areas of opposition or visionary breakthrough areas where they're 
trying to operate, but it surprises me how much integrity they have, actually. And I know they don't want to be dy dystopian. They're just mm. actually reacting authentically you know, to, a, to a situation where you know, a lot of people who ought to be declaring it dystopian are basically bullshitting the people, right? Or just making up rubbish. So that's, I don't know, it's a sign of hope in some ways, right? I mean, if all the science fiction writers were collaborating to say, oh, well, global warming's not a problem, and you know, our, our overlords in the banking system are actually, they, they really love us, and there's no problem with the NSA wiretapping everything we do, and we don't have to worry about guys being nerve-gassed or cut up with bone saws in Saudi embassies, you know, or what, whatever, the, whatever the atrocity of the day was, right? I mean, if science fiction writers had all decided to be upbeat yay-sayers, this would be a sign of worse crisis than them actually responding to a dark situation in an authentically dark way. So, um... So we are going to have to uh, to bring this to an end, I'm afraid. Um, but the clock will continue to tick. <laughs> Nine thousand settles eight hundred years ago. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, as a last question, I, I mentioned at the top of the show the the, the whole Earth 50th uh, anniversary just happened. I'm curious. You're a professional futurist. Um, futurism, futuring continues, a verb that it is. Um, you, and, 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 and I'm going to call you out as uh, uh, the, the terminal editor of the Whole Earth Catalog. You can I explain that. I think there were that. three other issues after mine, actually. Okay, okay. No, they might okay. have been like online issues. Okay. I didn't actually bury the thing. You, <laughs> but you, 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 had, you had the potential, the, the issue that never actually saw the light of day. Uh, yeah. It was a close one, admittedly. Yeah. Um, we can talk more about that. Uh, Bruce is going to stick around. His books are going to be on sale. Please all stick around and keep this conversation going. Uh, he'll be signing books afterwards as well. Um, so you've read more Whole Earth catalogs than I have, as of certain folks in the first couple rows here. Um, but as I've looked at, at more, one of the things I've thought about is that um, almost every article in Whole Earth Catalog, the, or the, and, and I should say the, the family of publications, um, Coalition Quarterly and Whole Earth Review, um, there's a lot of thinking about the future going on in those stories. It's not a world-building world. It's a lot of times something like, mushrooms will change everything. Solar panels are going to make everything different. In the process of maybe not writing those articles, but certainly of editing those, of seeing them all coming, reading through them, it's clear that these can't all possibly be true, because in part they don't even know about their neighbors in the same issue, um, let alone the guy who may have two years ago given a different mushroom vision of the world, so to speak. Um, so inherently there's a knowledge that talking about the future and projecting the future is flawed, that it's wrong, that it, that it can't be completely right, or that not all of them can be completely right. So is it still a good exercise to do, not as a professional knitted together, taking the holistic kind of cut of everything going on sort of uh, approach, but as individuals, as writers, or as just people in this room on Twitter or whatever, what is the, rather than the, the, the trying to be right kind of future, the failed flawed maybe kind of um, futuristic 
uh, endeavor. Um, what are your thoughts about that on, as an individual and a group or community kind of uh, exercise? Uh, well, you know, I don't think there's like the one future. So I think that sort of idea is gone. I mean, if you do like quadrant forecasting, which is like something I really like to do, uh, you're kind of dividing up ideas of the future into like different kinds of armed camps. And it always mm -hmm. says like, this is the slow one and this is the fast one. And like, this is the weird one. And this is like the poor one and this is the rich one. Uh, and you always think, okay, well only one of these is gonna work, but that's not actually the case. They all come true at the same time. It's just that one of them dominates and the other one is some kind of like weird minority notion. So, you know, the thing about whole earth, I mean, looked at historically, like people like 100 years from now or 150 years from now who are like looking through old microfiches because probably all the digital stuff will be gone. <laughs> but, but, you know, there will be things around. And, and when they're looking at it, I think what they're going to look at it and sort of judge it is like that it's very Emersonian, that it's actually all about American individual action, right? It's like the personal this and the personal that. Mm. So if you're like going through the, the whole earth thing, it, it rarely makes kind of grandiose Wellesian claims that sort of say socialism will triumph and everything's going to be. It's more like this might make you enthusiastic or, you know, <laughs> try it out. You can get it in the mail. It's like it's cheap and you could like have five, right? Uh, you know, and like, and you could do it. And like, why do you need the state? Why do you need the government? Uh, you know, nobody knows what's really real. Let's just explore every possibility and we're like, leave you here. And if you don't like it, you just flip the page and you like have the other thing, right? Mm -hmm. And the apotheosis of that attitude is the personal computer where you've got like one sort of gadget which you can afford, which mm -hmm. is on the desk and it's just for you and it's just for you and it's not like for the government or, you know, the corporation or whatever. And you can set it up the way you want and you can like pick your own font so you and you know and it like and it empowers you to do all kinds of stuff. You can do math. You can like communicate with people and so forth and so on. So you have a kind of super-powered Emersonian individual who's like thorough, really. I mean, he can go out into the bean shack. Except now he's got like this super device which can kind of connect him all over the world, and he can like find out all this kind of stuff and like really ramp himself up to the I'm being pretty good at being God-like situation, right? <laughs> Um, and, and that actually worked, but only for a historical period, because the personal computer is dead. I mean, nobody has a personal computer. Everybody's computers are social, and mostly they're, element, they're, they're mostly for commerce and for surveillance. Mm. That's their actual purpose now. And when it doesn't mean that, like, this was a wrong attitude, this is a historical development. It's like being amazed that, like, the Ford Model T has turned into a traffic jam, or that there are some electronic ones now, or that, or that there are self-driving ones, like the Google X car I was in today, right? Which like moves you silently around the landscape of Mountain View while also spying on you just all the time, right? It's not a personal car, right? It's like, I got into the car and it threw me out. <laughs> it's like, okay, I have delivered you to point A. Well, can I go back to the Google headquarters? No, you have to call another car now. Because it's like programmed to move me across the Google map. It's not actually a car at my command, yeah. right? I mean, it's a web-based transportation service. And I don't get to take the car back to where it came from. I have to download another car app service and then get back into this vehicle, which turns out to be the same vehicle. It just, it just went around the block and like picked me up and moved me in the other direction. 
Okay, you know, blaming Henry Ford for that is like a category <laughs> error, right? And like blaming whole earth for its, its uh, championship of the individual and then realizing that that actually leads to a kind of oxymoronic situation of unsought communication to, you know, very large forces. Okay, that happens in historically all the time, right? It, you're not even wrong in doing it. It's just what happens is like the consequences are built on top of the other consequences. So, you know, I think we're in a, uh, an era of political strife um, and, and possibly Bonapartism, right? Because, you know, there seem to be a lot of tyrants and oligarchs around yeah. who actually want, they don't want to seek out elections and they don't, you know, they don't really have a program. They just want to use social media to kind of turn themselves into you know, gigantic kind of outsized figures. And, you know, I think this, this era is going to pass too, but it's sort of very obvious, right? I mean, this is kind of what the next decades are holding for us. And in a lot of ways, it's a return to the historical elements that were very common in the 1600s, the 1700s, and the 1800s. It's not a singularity. You know, it's much more like the troubled worlds of the 30 years war or a kind of long emergency situation. Or even like periods in which China was a very optimistic and outwardly focused major superpower, you know, which China has not been for 150 years. But historically, there's been many periods where they were just like taking no prisoners and it's like really on top of their game. Okay, there, you know, if you study eras of history in which that occurred, you're actually looking at predictions of our future, which are probably more accurate than, than the other ones, right? And as for, you know, establishing catalogs and like throwing a lot of lit matches in a lot of different directions, you know, I have to say, I'm very fond of that. I mean, <laughs> you know, personally, I, I do that all the time. You know? And I, I give people like really weird ideas, like much weirder ideas than most of you would see in whole earth. And really just kind of throw them around, you know, um, from a kind of court jester, you know, kind of situation. Um, and I don't seek political power, and I, I, I don't really want to be rich. Uh, I don't even want to run a magazine. It's like too much work. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, I'm a person who like kind of pollinates in that way, or, or you know, maybe not poll pollinates. Maybe too kind a word. Maybe I'm like. Um, setting fire to things in like unfortunate ways or spreading subversive activities or, you know. Or fertilizer, maybe. Yeah, you know, or just bullshitting, really, you know. <laughs> kind of a, but you know, this is a temperament which is very whole earthian and you know, it's not, it's not something I'm willing to sacrifice. And I'm, I recognize that it's gonna be an old fashioned attitude in some ways. Like open source is not gonna conquer the world. It's gonna have a niche, right? And they're going to be people using it who you don't expect. Hmm. And I was very interested in that, and I like it because of its information wants to be free aspects. But you know, there, there are consequences to information being free that are severe and long-lasting. Information wants to be free doesn't mean information wants to be good. And it doesn't mean that good information wants to be free. I mean, yeah. like fake information wants to be free, or evil information <laughs> wants to be free, or fraudulent, and cult information, right? And so forth and so on. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of willing to take the historical consequences. You know, I, I'm not going to be like morally judgmental about myself. And, uh, you know, I think, I think in terms of like most magazines, 
that were established in the 1960s for like 68 or reasons, uh, you know, Whole Earth holds up pretty well. I mean, if you read Whole Earth and you read like situationist tracks, uh, Whole Earth is actually a lot more interesting <laughs> than, than stuff that the sits were up to. Um, you know, they just had a different approach to stuff. Uh, it did have the problem of evading, you know, of concentrating on the individual and hiding the larger flaws in the system. Because the world's not the fault of the individual. Individuals are very temporary. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can't save the world alone and we don't condemn the world alone. And there is something very American about whole earth and the way that British would say they're hard, isolated, stoical, and killers. <laughs> you know, that, that's the American temperament, the frontier temperament in particular. Like I'm on the end, end, endless frontier, ceaselessly developing myself. I'm hard, I'm isolated, I'm stoical, and I'll kill, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, because I'm American and I've got handguns. <laughs> you know, and, and that's what we really like, and we really, really, really like them. And they're very whole earth in a lot of ways because they're always pretending that it's like me and my AK who's suddenly going to bring justice to everybody down at the elementary school, <laughs> right? Or, or the drug, you know, the opiate thing that we have now, which is like, okay, it's me and this needle. And like, I'm gonna solve all my problems by like injecting this thing into myself. When that's not where your problems came from, right? But from an American, you know, an American individualistic society, these are the kinds of neuroses that arise from putting too much weight on the sovereign individual. He just can't do it all, right? Any more than you can be a futurist alone on the beach with a stick. It just can't be done. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, but Whole Earth tended to pretend that that could be done. It's like, I'll just take this hit of acid and I'll become like Kali. Like, no. I mean, you could take the hit of acid, but it doesn't really loft you to a higher space where you stay there. You've just eaten an intoxicant, and in eight hours, you're gonna be pretty much what you were before. All right, that's a fun experiment. Shame it didn't work. You know, maybe someday it will, but it won't because, because one guy did acid, it'll be because several million people are doing whatever it is that actually puts people into some other kind of neurological thing. Uh, so, you know, I don't think history will deal kindly with it, but I think probably it'll have a bigger reputation as time passes than people would think. There's just so many echoes of things in there that people that future people will be able to identify with. I mean, there's just, there's so much variant weird stuff in there. You know, some of it's gonna grow and then they'll say, oh well, yeah, this was in like page 38 of issue number 75. I mean, there's there a lot of stuff Whole Earth was noticing that most people weren't noticing. Yeah. yeah. And trying to summarize it, which was good. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to read Whole Earth and I would see something and think, you know, I heard like some vague rumors of this, you know, what is it? Oh, well, that's useless. <laughs> you know, but that was really a service for me. You know, it's like it allows me to like focus my attention on stuff that I actually am enthusiastic about. 
I, you, you said that, uh, I quoted that in a tweet today, right? Yeah, Which so is that kind of negative intellectual generosity. Yeah. It's like, let me, let me try to persuade you to be interested in this. It's like, no. So it's I'm the pages you skip are more valuable than the ones you actually read. Well, you know, I can, I can sort of figure out what that scene is like and just yeah. go somewhere else with a genius that's more attractive to me. You know, I don't even have to condemn them. I'm just like, got no time for that one. Yeah. You know, there's like too many other good stuff, good things going on. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of a curatorial effort in that way. Yeah. And it didn't tell you not to do it. It's like, this is the bad thing. It's just kind of like, these guys think it's great. And you look at them and they're like, these guys are... No, wait, I just, you know, not them, anybody but them. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, it really helped a lot. Uh, just, you can't be an expert on everything. It's just. Uh, well, Bruce, thank you so much for this. Um, I, let's uh, let's uh, give Bruce a round of applause. This is the, the Long Now Challenge coin, Carpe Millennium. Uh, and just a reminder to all of you, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> if you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.